0: So before we begin today, I thought that we would read over some of the local news of what's happened in the Middle East in the last week. If we remember, last week Sam Westrop, Zuhdi Jasser, and Congressman Paul Gosar all were bringing us the news of how the West was combating Islamists in the rest of the region, both here in the United States, in Europe, in Canada, and especially in the Middle East. But some quick headlines for you: in Syria we see that the UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said dozens of strikes from helicopters and warplanes hit parts of Hama, Idlib, and Aleppo, shifting Syria's battle from the south of the country now to root out the last rebel offensive in Idlib province. The last contingent of Syrian rebels in Swaida in the southeast of the country were defeated yesterday, and now we have the Syrian flag moving all the way From the Golan Heights on the Lebanese and Israeli border, all the way over to the Jordanian and the Iraqi border. We're also joined today, we just uh, had him walk into the studio by Matt Bennett, a colleague of mine from the Middle East Forum. Good morning, Matt.
1: Good morning, Greg. How are you doing today?
0: Doing all right. We're uh, broadcasting from Philadelphia and from Austin, Texas. So we're going to try this uh, intercontinental experience here. And if, if anything goes wrong on my side with the tech, We'll make sure that Matt's prepped and ready to send into battle and to, to ask some questions of our guests. All right, all right. Anyway, so going back to some of the news from this morning, Matt, with, with with the issue in Syria right now, I think that we're finding ourselves in a situation where Bashar al-Assad has moved from a conflict fighting amongst his own people and foreign fighters in his uh, uh, backyard to where he is now in the second phase of the Syrian war where we've gone beyond the civil war and we now have Turkey and Iraq and Iran and the United States and Russia and Israel and Lebanon all in this huge juggernaut of a battle that's going back and forth. And I was thinking to myself when I was waking up this morning when I was reading the news about Swaida, how is this going to portend for the 30% of Syria that's right now controlled by the Kurds? I mean, you know some of the work that we do here at the forum, basically takes us into a position where we find ourselves trying to not just analyze what's going on on a day-to-day basis, but how do we, how do we look five years, ten years out? Remember we, we did that piece uh, a few months ago where we had Ayman Jawadat Tamimi, our, uh, our Syria fellow, actually go into Kurdish-controlled, uh, uh, U.S.-assisted-occupied northeastern Syria, and he was uh, interviewing those ISIS brides and children. Sure, sure. So I, I think now is the time for us to, to look a little bit beyond Syria and to see what's happening with the rest of, uh, with the, rest of the region and, and what are the Iranian interests, the Russian interests. We, we, we can't focus on the, uh, the neighborhoods and, and, and the towns anymore, but this is going to get a lot bigger and a lot better than I think it, uh, it gets any, any uh, um, you know, clearer in terms of what the situation is there. Now, we, we also move to uh, south of Syria to Israel, there has been protests that have been erupting in the center of Tel Aviv for the past three weeks, sort of like a a game of musical chairs between Israel's minority groups. About a month ago in Israel, and you guys will remember this, we've spoken about this about two weeks ago on the program, Israel passed a nationality law, what they call the the Jewish State Bill, which essentially codifies in Israel's basic laws, which is a sort of quasi-constitution that the status of a Jewish and democratic state is, is now on a constitutional level rather than just being in their declaration of independence. And some uh, minorities have had choice words about this, whether it's the Druze. This is the uh, the Israeli minority that constitutes between 150 and 200,000 uh, uh, descendants of a mystical form of Islam from the uh, 11th and 12th century. They serve in the army, they're ministers and cabinet. They are members of Knesset. But, Matt, I, I think I remember seeing them having uh, uh, tens of thousands gathering in Kikar Rabin in, in Rabin Square. Remember those protests from back in 2011, the cottage cheese protests?
1: Yeah, of course. Of course.
0: So, you know, uh, with with the protests that were going on there, what, what was it like for you when you were on the, on the streets? Were you walking up and down uh, the main drag there in Tel Aviv, Rothschild Boulevard, and you were seeing people complaining about this and that?
1: Yeah, the streets of Tel Aviv and also the main squares, especially uh, close to the supermarkets, but definitely Kikar Rabin close to City Hall in the uh, center of the city.
0: So th- for, for me, this is the first time that I remember an Israeli minority group, the Druze, actually protesting there. And, and then the story actually gets worse. Uh, not worse, but, but it develops. You have last weekend in Tel Aviv, the Druze were two weeks ago, Last weekend, Israel's Arab minority, turns out. And we're not talking about uh, a majority of this minority or even a plurality of this minority that are, in one way or another, contributing to state service. They don't serve in the military, bar a a few hundred, not the hundreds of thousands that the Druze do. Uh, You don't find yourself in a situation where they are particularly uh, joining governments. There are members of Israel's Arab minority that are of the Labour Party, of the Likud Party, the two main political parties there. But um, the, the, the issue was that there was uh, not Israeli flags in this large city square where uh, Yitzhak Rabi, the uh, former Israeli prime minister, probably best well-known for his six-day war victory, his term as a prime minister in the 70s, and, and, and most famously for his uh, handshake on the White House Salon with the Yasser Arafat, in the same place where Arafat, and, uh, uh, and and Robin, um, uh, in one way or another, uh, were trying to grasp for straws of peace. In the same place where Robin, then two years later, was assassinated by a, uh, a, a, a another Israeli because of his peace push, we had Palestinian flags. It, it's sort of if you were, um, you know, going back 250 years and you were to have. Union Jack at a rally in outside of Washington, D.C. on on the Capitol uh, uh, lawn there or on the White House lawn or on on the Washington Mall. There was Palestinian flags being waved by Israeli citizens in the middle of the heart of Israel's cultural capital. Uh, You know, what does that have to say about Israeli democracy, where you have people openly being insubordinate uh, because of the passage of a democratically elected parliament passing a law which codifies the, uh, the nation-state uh, definition of what Israel is supposed to be, both Jewish and democratic. And, and uh, I mean, I can understand uh, protesting over the price of cottage cheese, but if you're protesting your, 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 who you are and, and who your people are, and then you're asking to be another form of another nationality, that's something that I take great umbrage with and great exception with. Uh, Matt, did you say anything more in terms of what was going on with those protests?
1: No, there was a lot of talk about how American Jewry or about how um, people uh, in the United States would perceive the law and um, what their reaction was to it. And I think uh, we haven't really seen the end of it. I think um, American Jewish organizations are start going to uh, take positions on this and um, it might get ugly. Yeah,
0: When, when does it not get ugly? Uh, American Jewish organizations, uh, a broad brush painted, uh, often find themselves on the opposite end of where a majority of Israelis agree with certain policy positions and and that's something I think we should leave between uh, presidents and prime ministers. Uh, next on Middle East forum radio we'll be joined by campus watch director Winfield Myers uh, and um, we also have though right away mr. E. j. Kimball director of the Israel Victory Project after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory Convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at
2: meforum.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations, to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines.
0: Welcome back to East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM. We are now joined by E.J. Kimball, director of the Israel Victory Project. Now, E.J. and I have had the pleasure of knowing each other for the past few years, but his history goes back a lot further than that, especially in the realm of of Israel policy and Middle East policy work. E.J. is a foreign policy and national security consultant with over 10 years experience in Washington, D.C. Prior to his serving as the director of the Middle East Forum's Israel Victory Operations in Washington, he was the executive director of the Israel Allies Foundation. Prior to that, he served as foreign policy counsel to Representative Sue Myrick, staff director of the Congressional Anti-Terrorism Caucus and Director of Government Relations for Jorge Scientific Corporation. EJ also has a law degree, an international security degree, an undergraduate degree, and I think he's even got a degree in Sharia law from Qatar. Uh, Welcome to the program, EJ. Thanks, Greg, thanks for having me on. So why don't you tell our listeners, what is the Israel Victory Project, and what do you do in Washington, D.C. to push the idea?
3: Sure, well, the Israel Victory Project is a new approach it seeks to create a new paradigm to actually resolve the conflict as as most of uh, the listeners i'm sure know about the oslo accords and and the goal of oslo which was uh, started with yasser arafat seemingly accepting the uh, the jewish state of israel Uh, but of course as we know that was all a lie and it was just a means to continue the rejectionism of israel and to gain whatever he could So what the israel victory project proposes is to take a step back let's put a hold on negotiations and let's first focus on ending the war this is a war over the right of the jewish state to exist and today it's the palestinians that are continuing that war and until that that war is over until the palestinian side accepts the reality that they lost that israel won it's here it's not going anywhere until that happens there's no negotiations to occur because there's no overlap. There's no room to actually negotiate terms of this uh, to, to end this conflict. So what we're doing is creating a new paradigm. We are saying focus, put the put the onus on Palestinian society, put the onus on Palestinian rejectionism of the Jewish state. Stop pressuring Israel. It's not Israel as the reason why there's still a conflict going on, it's the Palestinian side. So focus on the Palestinian side, pressure the Palestinian side to end their war against Israel, accept the reality of the Jewish state. And then you can have negotiations to determine what the term should be to end the conflict.
0: That's, so that's if, the big picture if I'm of, thinking like a, uh, if I'm thinking like a Palestinian, what incentive do I have to lose my five or six generations worth of indoctrination of believing that the Jewish state is the enemy and the only way to uh, defeat the enemy on that side, let's call it the the Israeli defeat project, is to defeat the Jewish enterprise. What incentive do I as a Palestinian have to, to lose my war? Well, the first
3: step you have to do if you're trying to convince a rational actor here is say, let's just look at the last 70 years. Where has this rejectionism gotten Palestinian society? Do you believe that you are any better off today than, say, 70 years ago or 60 years ago, 50 years ago, even five years ago? Is the situation for the Palestinians today any better than it was five years ago? And, of course, the answer is no. It's worse than it's been because they are seeking destruction rather than building for a better future. And you can just point to where where the future lays if you actually want to work with with, with Israel and and, and, uh, peace-loving people in the international community. The opportunities moving forward, if you give up uh, this dream of destroying Israel, destroying the Jewish state, you've got a whole international infrastructure ready to dive right in and help build a society, help invest into society. The Israelis are ready to invest standard of living will go up freedom of movement increases all the benefits that peace loving people have in the world are standing there ready to be given mm-hmm. but the continuation of the rejectionism will just lead to a harsher and harsher future
1: but ej we hear people support one state two states confederation apartheid what solution does uh, does ivp advocate
3: so the israel victory project doesn't propose a specific solution to the conflict this is about the paradigm this is how we think about the problem everyone's focused on how do we solve this conflict in the next you know six months or 12 months or, or three years you know every pre- new US president that comes in starts their peace plan they set some deadline to resolve the conflict and of course it fails and then we we continue with some sort of a, a war that breaks out and and some sort of cessation of violence this is taking a a broader approach this is about how we think about the issue not the specific solution to it because until the war itself is over you can promote a one-state solution a two-state solution a federation solution those are all well and good they can be discussed but they're all theoretical right now because until the war is over you can't enforce a solution onto the conflict so we take the step back but What we are proposing on the U.S. side is to get this administration, a future administration, our Congress, to support an Israel victory paradigm, to support the Israeli government in promoting and pushing this victory paradigm. But on the Israeli side, it's working through Israeli society, the Israeli Knesset, with the government in Israel to adopt this paradigm as their policy to resolving the conflict And we encourage on the Israeli side these sorts of discussions. What steps should Israel take to actually resolve the conflict? What steps can they take to convince Palestinian society, like I was arguing just before, that by accepting the Jewish state, by ending their war, accepting their defeat, if you will, that they can actually improve their lives, have a much better productive future for themselves and for future generations.
0: And one of the uh, issues that I face criticism with when I've spoken about the Israel victory idea, whether it be in the Knesset in Jerusalem or in Congress in the United States, is what are your particular specific policy recommendations that fit within this paradigmatic shift in approaching the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you are trying to advocate for? And one of the things that I say is it's not so much that we're trying to create a a uh, 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 specific policy ledger that Congress should implement or that the president should implement, but it's more creating a change in an attitude that creates a shift in thinking around how the, the, the conflict can be solved on something that meets both American national security interests and its allies' security interests, especially its, its stability and protects its, its, protects its existential issues. One issue that I think is tangential to this, that I I believe you're also familiar with uh, EJ and in D.C. and and also in Israel, is the uh, UNRWA, uh, Palestinian Refugee Agency, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, set up in 1948 and 1949 after the uh, creation of the State of Israel and the subsequent dilly-dallying of the Arab states not being able to to solve their uh, uh, refugee issue with the Palestinians. What can you tell us about what is going on with UNRWA reform uh, at the State Department and Congress? Um, just the general DC chatter. What's the uh, the Israeli response? And uh, and how how's your uh, organization? How's the Middle East Forum involved with this?
3: Sure, uh, great great question because the the UN Relief Works Agency for Palestine Refugees UNRWA. Uh, is a major impediment to actually resolving the conflict. Of course, you think uh, a refugee agency, that's obviously a good thing to take care of those that essentially can't take care of themselves, that they're refugees. But UNRWA perpetuates the conflict by allowing and permitting the uh, continuation of refugee status to future generations, to the descendants of the actual refugees from from the war in 1948. So the the refugee agency went from uh, responsibility for approximately 700,000 refugees to today estimates of over 5.3 million, which is an absurd number. Uh, It also is such an absurd number that when you look at the conflict and say, how do we resolve the refugee crisis? There's no solution to it. You don't just resolve 5.3 million people who claim that they were kicked out of Israel, and want to return to that land, which would essentially double the population of the state of Israel with a hostile entity right now. So in Congress, there's been discussion for years and the Middle East Forum has been leading this effort for about eight years now to reform the way, number one, that the US approaches UNRWA and the refugee issue. So uh, just a quick backstory, In 2012, the Middle East Forum worked with uh, then-Senator Mark Kirk to help inspire what's known as the Kirk Amendment, which required the State Department to report to the U.S. Congress on two numbers, approximate number of UNRWA recipients who were actual refugees and the number who were the descendants of those refugees. In 2015, uh, the State Department, the Obama State Department, submitted the report to Congress but classified it.
0: Wait, well, uh, hold on a second. Without, would a U.S. assessment of the n- amount of refugees that the country is providing aid for be a classified document?
3: Well, that, that was the exact question that we raised. Why would this be a classified document? And, you know, look, the, the reason why this is a classified document is because the State Department is protecting, the, uh, protecting UNRWA and the funding that goes there. It's protecting... policy that has been in place for years from the State Department which takes an anti-Israel view and that quite frankly continues this promotion of this Palestinian so-called right of return of not just the original refugees but their descendants into the state of Israel into what's you know called the pre-67 borders of Israel to actually return into that area of Israel that's been sort of the the promotion uh, that this is what the Palestinian side is, is seeking. This is their their goal. And by classifying these numbers, the State Department allows this idea to continue. Now, of course, the the State Department argument is that by releasing these numbers, it's prejudging a final status issue. In other words, what to do about the refugees should not be predetermined by the United States or anyone else. This is something that the Israelis and the Palestinians need to negotiate as part of a final agreement to end the conflict.
0: Well, I I think that the US has the ability to have its own sovereign decision-making and apply US law and US policy, especially to a group of individuals who have been receiving billions in American aid since the uh, 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 late 1940s. And if we look at the total amount of money that the U.S. has in one way or another wasted on the Palestinian refugee project in terms of keeping them in a dilatory state of of, of stasis, not being able to uh, even one way or the other have some kind of resolution to their issue. Maybe it's time that the U.S. does ask UNRWA to reform or to uh, perhaps find another mechanism for uh, supporting the, the true number of refugees, which I think we uh, estimate it, uh, uh our, our Mr. Daniel Pipes, who was on this program two weeks ago from the Middle East Forum, estimates it around twenty to thirty thousand. But it's certainly nowhere near five point three million. Maybe a uh, you know a small percentage of that. Uh, EJ, thank you for joining us today.
3: Great, thanks for having me on.
0: No problem. Next, after these messages, Winfield Meyer, Director of Campus Watch Project, of the Middle East Forum. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. on WWDB 860 AM now that we focus overseas we're gonna come back to the United States and look a little bit at a uh, a program that has been with the Middle East forum since 2002 campus watch our readers digest on Middle East and Islamic studies departments at American colleges and universities it's apt right now that I'm in the shadow of the University of Texas at Austin I think a uh, a university that has not been plagued by the internecine strife associated with Middle East studies and Islamic studies. But joining us today is, is Winfield Myers, the director of this program. He's been with the Middle East Forum for the past, I think we're going on 11 years now. Now, I think that Winfield is going to be addressing a topic that uh, is sensitive to, to many of us, especially those with, with children that are entering universities and colleges as they get back in session starting their fall semester especially considering the fear that some of us may have as parents in understanding what exactly are professors going to be teaching my children uh, as they begin university or as they return to school. But before that, let's tell you a little bit more about Winfield. Winfield is the forum's campus watch director. He's taught world history and other topics at the University of Michigan, the University of Georgia, Tulane, Xavier, and Louisiana. He also was the managing editor of the American Enterprise Magazine at the American Enterprise Institute and CEO of the Democracy Project Incorporated, which he co-founded. Mr. Myers has served as senior editor and communications director at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and as a principal author and editor of a college guide, Choosing the Right College. Winfield, how do we choose the right Middle East Studies program?
5: Good morning, Greg. Well, that's going to be a tall order. I think you would uh, go about it in the same way you would attempting to choose any uh, series of good professors in any kind of program and that is to do your research before you sign up for the class Uh, go online look at the um, look at what each professor offers look at what they teach look at what they've written uh, google their names see whether or not they're on campus watch campus watch is the best single resource for researching any Middle East Studies professor, and uh, if you see a a person's name frequently appearing there, read about it, see what we have said about them, see what they said about themselves, Mm -hmm. but you have to do due diligence. Without that, you can find yourself in a world of hurt when it comes to uh, being indoctrinated, being politicized, uh, being lied to, frankly, by your professors.
0: Winfield, I, I don't understand, per se, that the uh, position of the professor in the American College campus right now it has so much uh, uh, power. I mean, if we look at the professors of the uh, 40s and 50s, um, they were considered to be national leaders. They became cabinet secretaries, members of Congress. They were considered to be the uh, the seons of the intellectual elite in this country, especially after the, uh, the post-World War II movement, where hundreds of thousands of GIs returning from Europe were able to get their college education. Where did academia go wrong?
5: It began to go wrong really in the 60s with the baby boomer generation. Uh, You've read about, you're too young to remember that you read about the riots, the various protests. And what happened is I think the professors at that time coddled the students too much. They let them get away with too much. And today, those people who were protesting back in the 60s and 70s are in charge of universities. And we've found out they're not liberals. They're pretty totalitarian. They want to enforce their views, and they do.
0: Why don't you give us some examples of of some misbehaving professors that Campus Watch, on on one, one day or another, is 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 looking out after, and and uh, how you guys are able to bring them to account?
5: Sure, uh, there, there are a lot, but let me give you some examples that will show the kind of uh, problems you find in the field. Uh, for example, Nadia Abu el Haj is a professor at Columbia. Uh, she wrote a book arguing that there's no convincing ancient Hebrew presence in modern-day Israel. It's part of a, <laughs> a goal to delegitimize the, the existence of the modern state of Israel. If there was no ancient Hebrew presence, then what are modern Jews doing there? And that's her point, of course, is that they shouldn't be there.
0: Um, <clears throat> so wait so wait uh, a, a second, you're H- telling me, I go to <laughs> Israel, a country I've been to 40 times, lived there yeah. for eight or nine years. Matt here on, on the other line has has lived there for uh, four or five years himself. Uh, we're both married to Israelis who claim their roots in Jerusalem or in uh Svat, another town there. You're walking around the ancient ruins. You see ancient Hebrew written all over the place. You see the, 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 the stone for the ancient Hebrew uh, Jewish temple that's there. And there's a professor at Columbia who says that this isn't true.
5: And absolutely, and she's not the only one. This is something that is a, a movement of revisionist history, revisionism at its worst, uh, with a very political goal, which is to delegitimize the existence of the state of Israel as a Jewish state. And so they try to pull the intellectual rug out from under Israel by doing this, in arguing that, it, again, there's, they argue against evidence, against all evidence, that the ancient Hebrew presence was never... Predominant. It never, uh, you know, the Bible is fiction. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is filled with fables and myths. That a lot of this never happened. It never mind that archaeology consistently, you know, almost every uh, month or two, you read another story of archaeologists unearthing something that that proves the veracity of, of um, much of ancient Israel's history as recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Um, it's it's a political enterprise, not a scholarly enterprise.
0: Let's let's hear about some other professors.
5: Well, one of our uh, favorites, uh, non-favorites, is Hatem Bazian out at the U C, uh, at University of California at Berkeley. Uh, just a few months ago, he uh, he forwarded uh, on his Twitter account some extremely virulently anti-Semitic cartoons that looked like they came out of 1930s Germany. They were just vile. And after being caught doing this, he said, "Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't. I didn't know they were anti-Semitic. I forwarded them without looking at them." A six-year-old child would know they were anti-Semitic. Anyone would know they were anti-Semitic. Uh, Bahsian also is the founder of Students for Justice in Palestine, one of the most vitriolically anti-Israel, anti-Semitic student groups. Uh, this is These are the people who consistently attempt to shut down, shout down speakers with whose points of view they disagree. Um, it's
0: it's, it's those, interesting that you bring up uh, a student group. Now... Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these student activists or social justice warriors, however they define themselves these days, go into school as freshmen, most often leave as a senior, might be graduate students, a very few do PhD program, maybe one or two will become a lecturer or professor. How do the professors found groups like SJP, and even if maybe they did it when they were students, what kind of influence do the professors have over these very young uh, children? Uh, not teenagers, young adults now, starting their academic career.
5: I think they have a huge amount of influence, and it's it's a baleful influence. Uh, Just think back when we were 18 years old, you look up to your professors, these are people who purportedly know a great deal, they have wisdom, they're authority figures. You're also getting out of your household for the first time, getting away from your parents. So you think, aha, I can think on my own, I'm going to learn how to think independently and be a critical thinker. And you end up going with what these professors tell you um, because, you know, they they seem like they're smart people, they present themselves as morally upstanding, they present themselves as better than your parents are in many ways, and you can get sucked into these kind of radical groups. Um, And you see it throughout history, you see see it all over the place. It's a a sad affair. That's why sometimes students can be more harmed in in elite universities than they can at uh, some so-called lesser schools, the pressure is very high to conform.
0: So understanding the, the problem, I guess, is the first way to help fix the, the, the issue. But what can parents, alumni, uh, students who disagree with their professors, organizations like the Middle East Forum and Campus Watch, what can they do to help change bias uh, with these uh, uh, you know, intellectual warriors, these intellectual elite who are in one way or another sort of underwriting and changing history?
5: Yeah, the first thing to realize is that what you hear on the news from these kind of professors, what you read about, and it becomes common wisdom, is very often false. So first of all, realize the existence of the problem. And then contact your university, contact your alma mater. Tell them you expect better from them. Don't give them money. Hit them in the wallet. And for Pete's sake, don't believe what you find in the slick magazines, the alumni magazines we all receive, don't believe a word in them, for the most part. This, this is Madison Avenue. They spend millions of dollars per year marketing. Their goal is to pick your pocket. That's the only goal. So they present a beautiful, all is roses uh, scenario a view of view your, of your university. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. And insist, too, that your university or the state universities push for conservative leadership in these universities. It can happen. Uh, insist that... The status quo is corrupt, it needs to change, uh, the academic swamp also needs to be drained.
0: Winfield, thank you for your time this morning.
5: Thank you, sir, my pleasure.
0: You heard from Winfield Myers, director of Campus Watch, a project in the Middle East Forum that investigates, writes and advocates for sane Middle East studies programs in American colleges and universities. We're now gonna to turn to a new segment called Two on Two, We're going to talk about two countries in the Middle East. Matt's going to read us a news story from the last week. We'll give a little bit of analysis on it. Matt, what do you have for us first?
1: Sure. So first, we're going to start with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia said on Wednesday that there is no room for mediation in the kingdom's deepening diplomatic dispute with Canada and that Ottawa knew what it needed to do to, quote, fix its big mistake. Foreign Minister Adel al Jubair told the news conference in Riyadh that the kingdom was still, quote, considering additional measures against Canada, but did not elaborate. Egypt's Foreign Ministry spokesman Ahmed Abu Zaid said the country stands with Saudi Arabia in its rejection of foreign intervention in its international affairs or any attempts to undermine its sovereignty following the recent spat with Canada. So Greg, uh, what do you make of this and what would be the implications for Canada and the United States?
0: This all started, Matt, over a tweet. You had a a tweet from the Canadian Foreign Ministry that was criticizing Saudi Arabia's human rights record, even though that they've been trying to make significant reforms since the ascendancy of Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, relatively new crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And the tweet wasn't just in English in the Canadian Foreign Ministry site. It also was in Arabic at the Canadian embassy in Riyadh. So it started to get some play in local media. I think that if you have a Western government that is prodding a Middle Eastern government in its reform efforts, and you've already seen significant progress. Now, I'm not saying that the Saudi human rights record is anything to crow about, but if you have women starting to earn more rights, being able to get a certain uh, modicum of equality, at least versus the way that it used to be only a year ago, where they couldn't drive, they couldn't go out in public without a male uh, escort, whether it be their brother or their husband or a, a, another relative. Canada should be encouraging Saudi to, uh, to to reform more, rather than in one way or another trying to undermine the reforms that are going on right now and give fodder to uh, Saudi conservatives to criticize the reformation effort that's going on in that country. So, So I think Canada in one way or another, has to find a way to scale back their criticism. Maybe the Saudis overreacted a little bit. But uh, if you have a country going in the right direction, you don't want to do something that gives the the opponents of that reform ammunition to stop it in its path.
1: Interesting. Um, Moving on to Yemen, uh, the United Nations has said more than 350,000 people have been displaced from the strategic red port town of Hudayada, in western Yemen since June. Deputy spokesperson for the Secretary General Farhan Haq says during a press conference on Monday, violent clashes have erupted in the city over the past few days, especially in the ad Duraimi district. And he added that emergency humanitarian assistance has already been provided to more than 90% of those displaced. So, well, Morgan, the, uh, the,
0: the Yemen issue that we have right now is one where, just like in Syria, the civil war is on the brink of, in one way or another, going to a point of stasis. The Houthis have their territory. The Yemeni uh, UN-recognized government has their territory. The Houthis are being backed by the Iranians. The, the Yemeni government is being backed by Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and a Western coalition. But now it's starting to become the battle of supergiants rather than just uh, internecine conflict. We had a Iranian-sponsored uh, Uh, faction of the Houthis, launched a significant attack on the waterway um, that goes into the Red Sea and the Gulf of Yemen and and then into the Arabian Sea, stopping Saudi and Emirati shipping for almost a week. This actually was uh, worthy of a comment by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that he said he would act in coalition with his uh, uh, Gulf Arab uh, Sunni friends, I don't want to call them allies per se, but the other interested actors against Iran and ensuring that shipping was going on there. So Yemen definitely pretends to be an interesting uh, uh, country to to focus on, and I think we have to look at the actors involved, not just what's going on in the country itself. Thanks, Matt. After these messages, Elon Berman. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at ME Forum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing
6: the YMCA. What? You already know the why? Or so you think. Sure, you know the why for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class, while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background, and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that so while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more.
0: Welcome back. i Middle East. I'm right Greg Roman, our host here with Matt Bennett, our Philadelphia studio. And I'm really excited to bring on our next guest. Elon Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. is an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation, having consulted for both the CIA and the Department of Defense, providing assistance on foreign policy and national security issues to a range of agencies and congressional offices. He has been called as one of America's leading experts on the Middle East and Iran by CNN. Elon, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Greg. Good to be here. So you recently brought up in one of your articles the issue of Russian reports on their counterterrorism efforts and their need to be more transparent in their operations and fundings. Let's talk about President Putin and his uh, not just battle in Syria. We've spoken enough about that on this program for the last few weeks. But what exactly is Putin claiming to have done uh, fighting Islamist terrorism in his backyard and also in some of the client states that he's involved with?
7: So I I think the good place to start here is to uh, to explain that Russia has a significant Islamist problem uh, in terms of dealing with uh, internal trends, in terms of the radicalization of its Muslim population, and in terms of the fact that it really doesn't have a domestic solution to the growing number of Muslims uh, within the Russian body politic in general. So the back of the envelope calculation is that Russia's uh, about 146 million people um, and about 21 million of them uh, are Muslim. Uh, but uh, the trend line is very interesting because Russia, Russia's population as a whole is declining and it's declining significantly. Uh, its uh, repro- uh, reproductive rate is uh, sort of on a par with Europe. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've heard a lot about uh, the decline of uh, European fertility. Um, same thing holds true for Russia except that this decline is not happening uniformly. So the Muslim community uh, in Russia is actually reproducing uh, at a much greater rate because they uh, divorce less, they they, uh, have more children, they drink less, they have less health problems, right? There's all sorts of reasons. But the aggregate result is that Muslims are Russia's fastest growing minority. And the authoritarian state that Vladimir Putin built doesn't really have a lot of place for them. So over the last uh, decade, but in particular, since the rise of the Islamic State in 2014, you've seen this mass mobilization by Russian Muslims, uh, not only mobilization, but radicalization and, you know, traveling to the Middle East to join ISIS and uh, join the ISIS caliphate. Um, this is a trend line that the Russian authorities have tried to aid and abet, right? They've even uh, helped escort these people out in much the same way that Middle Eastern countries let Um, Jihadists travel to Afghanistan uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, with the understanding that they wouldn't really be returning back. Um, But it's also what has propelled Russia into Syria. Uh, The Russian uh, strategy in Syria isn't just about shoring up the Assad regime, although that's obviously a part of it. It's also going abroad and fighting Islamic radicalism before these radicals come home to menace the homeland. And so that's a really interesting sort of dynamic that you see. And it also suggests that the Russians in the Middle East, they're not going anywhere, right? Because the best defense
0: is a good offense. So their, their strategy is kind of to hit the hornet's nest before they have a chance to deploy and sting you. I understand. Exactly right. Now, the other thing about Russia's interests is, is that, they are dealing now with a post-conflict Syria. You know, talking about their reaction to domestic Islamist insurgents and and, and their non-violent Islamism problem, especially in some of the southern provinces. I, I guess we're talking about Dagestan, um, Chechnya, uh, Abkhazia, and, and some of the other areas down there in the Caucasus region, and also I guess in Central Asia they might have some issues with uh, some former republics, uh, Uzbeki uh, rebels coming across the border, maybe the Kazakhstan. How, how is Iran not Iran but how is Russia in one way or another dealing with their Islamist allies or their their Islamist frenemies like Iran and some of the other Middle Eastern countries that they've gotten particularly close to in, in the last uh, seven years since the beginning of the Syrian civil war?
7: right no and, and I think that that's uh, one of the central questions and the answer is uh, they're managing for now, but it's the outlook isn't very good and it's not very good very simply because, Russia is pursuing what I would call an accidentally Shiite strategy in the Middle East. Um, they are they've made common cause with the Iranians. They see clearly see the Islamic Republic as a force multiplier uh, for their interests in the Middle East, uh, in particular because of the uh, on again off again tensions between the United States um, and Iran, uh, which Russia really likes. It serves Russia's strategic interests. Uh, but they've also made common cause and uh, are supporting the Assad regime in Syria, which is allied. Um, so, uh, as a result of this, they've had a lot of blowback um, from the Sunni Muslim world. And, and uh, not only uh, the Islamic State has declared uh, open warfare on the Russian Federation, but also uh, Saudi clerics, uh, Jordanian militants, right, uh, the list goes on. And so they, what they're looking at is a situation where, in the service of geopolitics, they have hemmed themselves into a corner where the potential response from global jihadism against the Russian Federation itself could be very, very severe, and the Russian authorities are are nervous.
0: So what kind of terrorist attacks or what kind of uh, kinetic events do you think Russia is expecting? I mean, they just hosted the World Cup without any significant security incidents. They were able to clamp down on that. And in several Russian cities, it wasn't just in Moscow, but in Sochi, they were having events. They were able to do it in St. Petersburg and in the center of the country. So they seem to have managed that pretty well. But if we're looking at a five-year horizon here, what kind of, uh, you know, sort of stellar terrorist activity could we expect, maybe on the level of the Beslan School Massacre, or maybe the Moscow Theater? Do you think Russia's prepared for another incident like that?
7: I, I think this is precisely what the Russian authorities are really nervous about. Um, look, the most uh, significant Islamist group active in the Russian Federation is a group called the Caucasus Emirate, uh, Emirate of Kafkas. Um, And they have been, uh, and it's sort of, it's it's a little bit of a muddy picture. Part of the Caucasus Emirate broke off and uh, pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. Part of it did not. But the overall trend line is clear. Uh, The Russian state has uh, moved militarily and mercilessly against the uh, the Caucasus Emirate um, and has been very effective. And the number of terrorist attacks within Russia has declined uh, since about 2015 uh, pretty significantly. But that specter, the specter of... A potential large-scale attack being carried out against uh, vulnerable civilian centers uh, is what keeps keeps Russian authorities up at night because they understand very well, even though they don't say it publicly, that what they're doing in the Middle East is inflaming uh, Muslim sentiment, not only in the Middle East but also even closer to home. And so, uh, the this they're sort of uh, they've succeeded in painting a very opaque picture. So, you know, the uh, so the numbers are, are pretty striking. Um, since uh, between uh, 2015 and 2017, their main uh, internal security service, the FSB, uh, which we've all heard about, uh, has issued more than 3,500 public statements about the fact that they've, you know, they've shut down militant cells, they've thwarted terrorist attacks. But during that process, uh, there've only been about 12 successful prosecutions. Um, so either the Russians are inflating. Uh, very significantly, their successes in counterterrorism, uh, or they're being very, very successful, but a lot of these uh, these militants are disappearing, or they're not receiving due process. But what this suggests to me is that the Russian government is using counterterrorism politically, um, in a very real sense. They are uh, justifying their very draconian attitudes towards the internet, their very draconian attitudes towards public safety and, and uh, uh, mass gatherings in Russia uh, on the basis of counterterrorism. They're saying, you know, we're doing all this stuff, we're clamping on all these uh, civil liberties and freedoms uh, in the service of counterterrorism. But the numbers just don't track with that. They're simply using them as tools of repression.
0: Now, you know, you've also written about this subject in the past where the the physical domain that Islamist, violent Islamist jihadists, terrorists have operated in was one of trying to uh, commit large-scale attacks using a small amount of resources. But as you just pointed out, the Russians are trying to justify their counterterrorism policies by saying that the threat has been extended into the cyber or, or, or virtual domain. Now, we, we hear a lot about how the U.S. is trying to communicate against extremism on the internet what are, what are the Russians doing besides taking draconian measures to try to actively communicate to their minority populations that it's not in their interest to, in one way or another, be affiliated with Islamist movements?
7: Yeah. So the answer is not much. Um, the Look, uh, Russia is an authoritarian state. Authoritarian states respond very predictably to challenges to their rule. So, uh, you know, Russia has leaned into uh, the security services, has leaned into increasingly restrictive laws. Uh, that limit access to the World Wide Web, that, uh, you know, do greater governmental monitoring of what Russian citizens are saying online or doing online. Um, that's all very predictable, but they don't have a countervailing narrative to the type of radical Islamic messages that their Muslim minorities is receiving.
0: And that, what I find ironic is, is, is that the Russians were able to use active measures against U.S. democratic institutions, yet they failed to, to be able to, to counter message the problems going on in their own backyard.
7: Well, and so, so that's, a, I think, a larger and probably a more intellectual conversation about uh, the fact that you can't fight something with nothing. Uh, it's very easy to destabilize uh, open institutions, as they have done here. But it's much, much harder to build a compelling and attractive narrative Uh, against uh, Islamist ideology when, you know, most Russians, right, the the majority of Russians uh, are uh, increasingly convinced that the Russian Federation is a failing project as a nation state, right? A third of of Russians uh, below the age of 40 now uh, in a recent poll have said that they want to emigrate, they want to leave the country, right? Russia is seen as, as sort of intellectually bankrupt. So they have a real problem. They can repress their Muslims all they want, but they don't really have the intellectual juice to come up with a compelling counter-narrative.
0: Right, and, and I was speaking with a former Russian diplomat that now lives in the United States. Uh, he said to me, there's three things that Russians in Vladivostok, the uh, most eastern province, farthest away from Moscow, will protest about. One, the price of cars, two, the price of vodka, and three, the price of cigarettes. Everything else is meant not for the Russian Empire that exists today, but one for they hope will exist tomorrow. Um, Any final thoughts? We've got a minute left.
7: No, no, I I think that's exactly right. Uh, Look, uh, the the old saying that all politics is local is exactly correct. And so when you think about Russia, we should think about the fact that a lot of what they're doing, not all, but a lot of what they're doing in the Middle East in particular is based on deflecting and diluting threats that might occur to the Russian Federation itself.
0: Elon Berman, thank you for joining Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB eight sixty a.m. My pleasure. Now, Matt, we've got about three minutes left this morning to sort of uh, conclude our our week's program. I want to end with a a few final thoughts, not about uh, Yemen or Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, Middle East politics, or uh, what's going on with Israel, but something of a more closer nature. As we find ourselves right now going towards the 2018 uh, midterm elections with the House of Representatives a third of the Senate, uh, many gubernatorial races on the line, we often find ourselves at a uh, cross, one which is the intersection of, as Elon just mentioned, all politics being local, but the second which is a national referendum that is now taking place on President Donald Trump. But I urge listeners not to forget about the issues that are affecting our interests overseas and some of the politicians who are now in one way or another trying to make statements about policy, using Trump as a scapegoat when in fact they are promoting extremist positions. One issue that I notice is Representative Keith Ellison, the vice chair of the Democratic Party, having recently been accused, not by one, but by two women, one allegation going back to the mid-aughts and one coming out just a week ago of domestic abuse. Now, he was able to handily win his primary yesterday on uh, uh, the Michigan uh, attorney general race. But let's not forget that the debate that's going on right now about his uh, potential alleged domestic infractions is in no way uh, an excuse to be able to focus on some of the policies that he's advocated, which may in one way or another be uh, anti-American. Now, beyond that, I think we also have to look at another uh, candidate who was able to win uh, uh, the Democratic primary in her district in Michigan and another in Minnesota, two individuals who, you know, Uh, uh, All celebratory moments aside, because of their status as being the first Palestinian woman to potentially be elected to Congress and the first Somali woman to potentially be elected to Congress, let's not forget what their foreign policy priorities are. We even have some Republicans who are running in some districts who are promoting anti-American positions. So when you go to the polling booth, whether you're at the end of your primary cycle, in, in Pennsylvania we had it back in May, but if you're able to, in one way or another, try to make a decision on what you're going to do at the ballot box, whether it be this November or whether it's just something that you have in a primary that's coming up. You got to think about not just what's going on in Washington, what you're reading in the news, but how the policy positions that candidates are advocating in one way or another will protect American interests, both here at home and abroad. I mean, I think that in this time of electoral instability that in one way or another has been, Uh, brought by foreign interference, whether it be by Russia, whether it be other countries trying to get involved in our internal domestic processes, we cannot forget that the individuals that will be elected this November, in one way or another, will be making the decisions affecting us overseas, and then boomerang to affect us back here at home. I think that the most significant achievement of what I've seen in stemming foreign influence came from the passing of the 2019 Fiscal Year National Defense Appropriations Act, which was signed by President Trump at Fort Drum this past Monday. In it, a section called 1085, very long bill, hundreds of pages, outlines the behavior that foreign media outlets need to be able to take into consideration when they are, in one way or another, trying to operate in the United States. The New York Times had 100 reporters in Washington, The Washington Post, 111. Al Jazeera, a foreign-owned, Qatari-backed, anti-Semitic purveyor of vitriol coming from that country in one way or another, was put into a position of now having to register their interests with the U.S. government. Thank you very much, everyone. This is Middle East Forum Radio, WWDB, 860 AM. Matt Bennett and Greg Roman signing off. Have a great week.